Welcome to the Tim Castle Live Show, where we meet courageous people doing inspirational things around the world. Now, today I've got the opportunity to talk to Romaine Jackson, head of SEA for Dear Logic. And we really focus this episode around our gifts and our talents. And Romain goes into specific detail around how you can push yourself out of your comfort zone and the responsibility you have to use those gifts and your talents to your fullest ability. What I love about this episode and what shines through clearly to me is, is just how passionate Romain is about taking all the situations in life and seeing them as an opportunity to grow. So what he does regularly, and it will shine through to you in this episode, is how he recalibrates and reevaluates the objective that's in front of him, all under the lens of that bigger mission. So everything that is, he's really reevaluating and refocusing on what he needs to do to get to that next level, to get to that next stage, and to also give more to the world and to bring a sense of mission and purpose to his life in a fulfilling way. What Romain gives you in this episode is, is a lot of value around the mentors that he uses, where he finds courage, how he uses things like sports to help him in business, which I think is a great advantage. Romain is a sportsman through and through, and he, he talks around where he finds mentors within sports, but also playing sports himself to really bring out the values that, and the best characteristics in life and how you can be a team player and win as one. And so listen up for this episode, play it again, take notes. There's, there's a ton of value that Remain goes into and specific strategies that you can use and apply today in your life to reach that next level and go the extra mile. So without further ado, I'll introduce to you Remain. Well, Remain Jackson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to, to finally be on your podcast. No worries. I've, I've been very excited about this. So Romain, for everyone's uh, introduction, Romain is head of Southeast Asia for Dear Logic. And I've been really looking forward to, to getting you on the show and understanding how you operate your daily life. As you know, this show is all about meeting courageous people, doing inspirational things around the world. And this is certainly an episode to listen to. So I'm going to kick things off with my favorite question around what is your motto or mantra for life and how do you apply it? Wow, what a question to start off with. What's my motto or mantra for life? Um, I think that's a very important question. I think it's important to have a life that's built around purpose and a life that's intentional and built on deep meaning. So for me, that's, that's a very important question. And I think something like that, literally, I think when I open my eyes in the morning, where does my mind go? Where's the very first place that my mind goes within five seconds of waking up? And that's really what's driving me for that day. And I think if I was to think back to this morning when I, I woke up, it would be something like God is love. Um, and a lot of the times I spend with my kids, I think about sort of what I'm teaching them, what kind of principles and values I'm laying down. And one of the things that, that we, we teach, well, teaching my son, he's about three now, which I remember learning very early in life is love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. 
So from that basis, that's I would say that's what I would say is the mantra or the motto that we build everything else on. I believe fundamentally, if if you do that um, and you apply that in all different areas of life, success will follow, fulfillment will follow, meaning will follow as well. So we try and keep it very intentional, very purpose driven, and something that's directly related to to what gives life meaning and purpose. Awesome. So, so God is love is kind of how you situate your life and mm-hmm. you start from that principle. And that's mm-hmm. brilliant to see that you're, you're passing your mantra and motto onto your kids as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then I think for this year, um, the way I've sort of structured objectives and goals for this year, so I use this OKR model um, where I set an objective for each of the different areas of my life and then um, I have key results, so one objective and then three key results typically. And that's a model I use at work as well. It's a model I use in sport and in sort of different areas of life. Um, but also practicing the Pareto principle this year as well. So there are so many things I want to do, so many things um, that I think would be great to achieve this year. But I really love the concept of the Pareto principle, which tells you to essentially spend 80% of your time doing the the 20% of things that bring and yield most value. So I've sort of distilled that down to three key buckets. And and the first one is first things first. So when you wake up, you direct your most fruitful energy to the most important thing first. And for me, that's, that's God and spiritual things. Um, so that gets the priority in terms of first things first and what I'll do before anything else. And then from that second thing, second, so I'll bucket that as health and relationships. So that's the very next focus and all my object- objectives and key results would then sort of align to that. And third things third um, really is intellectual development and personal development and things to to make yourself more productive in all different areas. Um, so I think that sort of flows from the mantra and the motto as well and, and guides my daily life. Um, and one thing I, I really like from, so when I, I read the Bible, I really like to focus on things that, that are applicable to my daily life as well. And one text that I, I take from the book of Proverbs, which is a, a really good book, it's like Hebrew wisdom literature. Um, Proverbs 21.5 says, the plans of the diligent surely lead to abundance. So I always take that and apply it to always seeking to plan, seeking to vision, seeking to think ahead about sort of where I would like to take the day and, and why my Pareto goals are my Pareto goals. And so that's, that's been working really, really well for you this year. So mm-hmm. what, what time would you kick things off in the morning? Just so people can get an idea. So that's a very, very, very interesting question, what my morning routine would look like. So I've done a lot of work on my morning routine. It's changed a lot over the last two or three years, and I'm still trying to find the optimal one. Um, The key focus of of my reading and research right now around morning routines is really sleep. Um, So I've been someone throughout life who's really undervalued sleep. I've, I've almost aligned sleep with being sort of lazy or not driven or um, someone who just just likes likes to to to, to rest essentially. Um, and I've realised I've, I've really had the wrong view of sleep for much of my life. Um, a lot of the early sort of personal development books I read said you have to give up sleep, and there's a lot of time to sleep when you're dead, and, and all of that kind of <laughs> stuff. 
I've realized that's, that's not good advice. Um, and that's something I really just crystallized maybe in the last two or three weeks. Um, just like researching sleep, the benefits of sleep, um, how sleep impacts performance as well. So I look at all the key elite sports people that I admire, like someone like LeBron James or even, even um, Michael Jordan and all, all the key, key athletes, Usain Bolt. Sleep is like a fundamental building block for anything they want to achieve. It starts with the quality of sleep they have. And the reason why, and that leads to another thing I've been looking into, which kind of is part of my morning routine, is thinking about the happy chemicals. So things like endorphins, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, all of these are the key things that drive productivity. These are the key things that solidify habits. And a lot of these things come from really good sleep. But sleep is essentially the building block of growth, right? Your body cannot grow. And one thing I learned like when I played American football and I used to go do weightlifting a lot is a lot of the recovery of the muscle and the building of the muscle occurs while you're sleeping. So you could be in the gym three, four hours a day and sleeping three, four hours a night and you're losing out on 60, 70% of the benefits of actually being in the gym. And what's the objective of being in the gym? The objective of being in the gym is to grow muscle mass, to grow strength, to grow explosive power. And where does all of that thing actually happen? You think it's in the gym. The gym, all the gym does is it breaks down your muscle fibers, it tears them, it rips them apart. But the strength and the growth actually comes from the recovery. And most of the recovery is happening when you sleep. Um, so I've really just looked at that. Um, and there's this sleep scientist, uh, I forget his name. His first name is Matthew and Ted talks. He, he does a few really good Ted talks and he just really broke down like the benefits of sleep, the things happening in the brain as you sleep. Um, and when you wake up in the morning, like if you've had a good night's sleep, all of those things you're, you've set out to do in the morning become 50, 60, 70% easier. Um, so it's really hard for me because I find it very, very hard to sort of switch off and shut down and go to bed when I know, okay, there's these three, four, five, six, seven things I could be doing right now. Should I be going to bed? Um, but I think go back to Pareto principles. If you're not trying to do everything and be all things to all men, um, but you're trying to spend 80% of your time on the top 20% of, of value yielding activities, then that discipline should drive good quality sleep. So that's just some background on what the morning sort of what my focus is around improving my morning routine um, and, and doing that alongside really understanding how does dopamine work in the mind, really understanding that the brain operates based on different hormones, different chemicals and every emotion we feel, um, everything we're addicted to, every habit we have is just built on the back of which chemicals are flowing around your mind. So I feel if you can understand those chemicals, if you know how to pull on those chemicals, things like dopamine, because if you look at um, how the tech firms have understood dopamine and used it to sort of lock people into ecosystems and sort of drive different types of behavior by sort of making it part of a habit um, and, and using the understanding of dopamine and, and all the other things that make you feel good. Like when someone likes your post or retweets your tweet um, or sort of gives you some kind of stimulus um, online that kind of reinforces your, your habits. And, and a lot of the 
the hardware and software that we use is built around that. So if we can understand that on a personal level, I think it positions you not to be used by technology, used by software, but to to then become the producer um, and, and use these, these things to further your own objectives. So right now I'm trying to get nine hours of sleep and I think that's the foundation. Before it was, it was six, um, then it was seven, then it was seven and a half, then it was kind of hovering around eight. And now I'm very unnaturally forcing myself to try and get nine hours of sleep. And that might look like two hours in bed, tossing and turning not being able to switch off and go to sleep. Mm. But I think based on a lot of the science I've looked at and a lot of the elite athletes who perform at their top level, especially the ones who can perform into their late 30s and 40s, they're prioritizing sleep massively because that's how they recover. And when they recover, they can perform at their best. Um, so yeah, moving away from viewing sleep as lazy to viewing sleep as an essential building block of life. Um, and also one interesting thing is humans are the only species that forcefully like drive themselves away from sleep every other species when they're tired they sleep they never fight sleep they don't try and go and drink coffee and try and sort of prolong days um the natural design of life and that's something i try and stay as close to as possible is the natural design of nature mother nature and try and stay aligned with that um so that's a, that's a challenge but yeah trying to get nine hours of sleep so a book I read recently, very old book, Benjamin Franklin, The Way to Wealth. Um, one of his key things is early to bed, early to rise, keep a man, keeps a man healthy, wealthy and wise. Um, so that's kind of one thing that's kind of inspired me around that. And then when I wake up in the morning, so I'm trying to get up for 5 a.m. at the moment, at the morning, in the morning, sorry. Um, and then, yeah, I go to my first things first, second things second, third things third. So first things, spiritual time. Um, that looks like praying, meditating. And that's another big thing is the meditation side of things and really spending time in silence, um, spending time being grateful for what I have and trying to focus and position my mind around the things that I've been blessed with. Um, and sure, there are things in life that don't go well all the time you try and sort of cultivate a positive mindset and realize that you're not alone and you have some help in addressing those things. Um, the Bible, something I try and read every day. Um, so that's, that's my first bucket. Second bucket is going to be exercise. So I've really changed the way I exercise. Um, it's been very challenging because I played American football for a very long time. I had a very good routine very much focused around achieving success in American football. So that looked like my objective above all was to win a national championship. So everything I did around American football was with that. That was my Pareto, one Pareto task, lift a national championship. And what does that look like? What does someone who lifts a national championship, what do they eat? How do they sleep? How do they exercise? How do they think? Who do they surround themselves with? Everything. The environment was built around winning national championships. But I no longer play American football. And I realize I'm still built and everything I do is still around that mindset. And I really had to think to myself, what are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to win a national championship American football tournament right now? No, you haven't been trying to do that for about three or four years now, maybe longer. So why are all your goals, your regime, your routine, even though it's good because there's a lot of spillover effects in other areas of life, if that's your ultimate objective, even subconsciously, like 
when you, you go to work, in your relationships, in your hobbies, and all the things you do, if you have those kind of principles flowing around, it normally um, leads you to a good place. Um, but that's, that's not actually my objective right now. So let me look at what is my objective right now. And I realize like, I don't need a body designed to play American football. And I'm working out as if I need a body designed to withstand him impact or to be ultra explosive or to be super and ultra fast at every given time. That's not necessarily what I need a body for right now. As I enter into a new phase of life, what I need is, yeah, I need a strong, I need to be strong. I think it's important to be strong. You never know when you're gonna need strength, physical and mental. Um, I think it's important to be flexible physically and mentally. Um, I think it's important to be explosive physically and mentally sharp and agile. Um, so those are some of the key objectives I have from being healthy and having a healthy body. And that means that my body is more sort of flexible to meet different objectives. It's not singular in its purpose to play American football. It's now more of a lifestyle which I can apply so I can play with my kids in a certain way um, for a very, very long period of time as, as I get older and older and older. You, you, you hear these stories about people who literally can't play with their kids because they never took care of their back when they were 30. Um, so um, started going to the chiropractor. Um, and again, that's like sleep. I've always thought the chiropractor is for someone who's got chronic pains and you literally can't walk or you wake up and you can't turn your, your head left or right, which did happen to me once. Um, but then I started going to the chiropractor and I realized it's not just about people in older age or people with chronic back pain or chronic neck pain. I realized like elite sports people go to the chiropractor all the time, like Tiger Woods, um, Kobe Bryant used to do it. Um, Serena Williams, like they all, it's just a part of what they do because living the way we live and having the lifestyles we have right now, we're all very much attached to devices, which isn't again, part of the natural design. Your neck wasn't designed to be like this for hours and hours, five, six hours a day, or you weren't designed to be hunched over a laptop in bed six, seven, eight, nine hours a day, right? And going to the chiropractor really re-educated me about the structure of the body and the mm -hmm. fact that if you start with just having a good structure, good ergonomics, where you sit, and again, by natural design, we weren't designed to sit 12 hours a day. Um, but if we are gonna sit 12 hours a day, how can we stay true to the integrity of our skeletal structures? Um, so just literally things like how you sit, is your shoulder hair or is your shoulder hair? Like all of those little things can make a huge difference to so many things. Um, like a few things, and especially in the COVID time, your immunity. If you have good posture, um, just for good posture alone, um, that will aid your breathing. So posture and breathing um, can help you to sort of boost your immune system because um, your immune system depends a lot on your, your spinal health and your ability for all of your different vessels and systems in your body to coordinate and cooperate with one another. So by having an optimal sort of structure, right, how you sit, how you breathe, where you put your foot and all of that, that helps a lot. Um, and then having spinal adjustments. So that's why I go to the chiropractor. A lot of the other things they can just tell you your first visit and you can practice it. Um, but the spinal adjustment, the way we live and the things we do, especially if you're very active, your spine gets misaligned 
and it compounds through life, your spine compounds. So it could just, yeah, continue bending and bending and bending and bending until it gets to a point where there's no return. Um, so really, it was really interesting sitting with chiropractors and looking at the spine and looking at like the benefits of, um, of the alignments, aligning your neck and your lower back and how that can help with your morning routine, how it helps with energy, how it helps with your immunity, um, how it helps with um, just comfort in life and high performance as well. So that's something new, 2020, that I've, I've put into practice, which has helped quite a lot. Um, and then, yeah, the things I'm doing, so to go back to the, the previous point, so the way I'm training in the gym, very different. Before it was just all compound lifts, bench press, squat, deadlifts, pull-ups, chin-ups. And like in American football, you literally could just do those five exercises every single day and like you'd meet all your objective. But now it's, it's more challenging out the box, things like functional movements, high intensity interval training. And then this year I've, I've taken up tennis as well. And that's been amazing um, because tennis allows me to get back to exercising those explosive juices that I like to, to exercise. So I grew up playing basketball and basketball was my first love in terms of sport. Um, it was the sport I sort of first mastered growing up. It was the sport that I was in a re that's the first time I was in a really high performing environment with, I'd say world-class, a world-class coach and probably a world-class junior basketball system in the UK um and that stuck with me all the way since so even when i play american football or when i play tennis or play anything else like those natural the natural affections i had through playing basketball i'm really trying to practice those things but playing american football because like a lot of american footballers did initially start off playing basketball because basketball is good for kids because you you develop all these different transferable physical skills which you can take to many other sports so you find basketball normally is a very good place for kids to start and then it makes you very flexible in playing other sports later on. So someone like LeBron James, like he played basketball, but he also played American football. And you see that with a lot of American athletes as well. Um, so yeah, tennis has been great. And the reason I took up tennis, again, very intentional, is I think tennis is something I'm going to be able to play with my family. That's something like when my kids get older, I would like to have something that we could all like a sport we could all do collaboratively together because again for most of my life sport's been about me it's been very mm -hmm. self-driven my own motivations my own objectives my own goals which yeah was good was fun but now as you get a family as you sort of mature in your marriage you, you realize that you're you're going to start denying self a bit more and thinking about the collab the community like the family community and like what's a good sport we could all play together i think basketball maybe we could all play that together but i think tennis is is probably a bit more egalitarian like across the genders and, and across different age levels like i've played with people many like twice my age and we've had a good competitive match I've played with men, I've played with women, good competitive match. So I quite like the egalitarian nature of tennis um, and the mastery involved in tennis as well. It looks like a very simple sport on the surface. I, I think that's important, actually, that point uh, around business and how you apply, like the competitiveness of sport. Do yeah. You do you see some alignment there, or are you are you taking what you learned 
American basketball and American football, highly competitive sports and and now tennis mm-hmm. into your business game as well? Or what are the parallels there that you, you see that aligned? Yes, 100%. Um, and I think especially American football. So I think the one that I've a, a sort of aligned most with business and not just business, but personal development as well as American football. What drew me to American football wasn't the violence. What drew me to American football was the strategy, was the human chess game. And it was the, the theory behind American football. So a lot of people, they turn on the TV, they see American football. It looks pretty cool, but so much going on. Don't understand. Don't have the time. Change channel. Um, but I was lucky at university to have a roommate who'd just been a diehard American football fan his entire life. Um, and there are quite a few people like that in the UK. Um, and he took me along to a, my first American football practice. And then I really got to see the inside beauty of American football. Because it's a sport where you really do need someone to hold your hand. It's not like football where you could turn it on and figure it out and you'd get the gist of it after watching a few matches. American football is highly technical. And it's also very strategic. And there's a lot of theory. There's a lot of mind games. There's a lot of things going on. Like every inch of American football is thought through and prescribed. Very little is left to chance. It's all very much a purpose-driven sport. And I really like that. So a lot of it is in the preparation. So again, these are the things that flow through to business now. Preparation, vision. Do you know your vision? Do you know your mission? Um, Do you know why you and your team are coming to work today? Is there any singular Pareto purpose or goal that your company or you as an individual is trying to achieve? Are you a purpose-driven company? So American football is a purpose-driven sport. And that can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing because it can be all-consuming at the same time. And American football definitely consumed me, like all of me at certain times. And that (laughs) is dangerous as well. Yeah. That makes you very self-centered. It makes you very... And then, like, watching... I don't know if you watched the Michael Jordan documentary on Netflix. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. So I think if you go into the mindset of Michael Jordan and also the mindset of Kobe Bryant, they become very, very insular and very, very self-absorbed because there's one singular objective. Do not get in my way. Do not slow me down. If you cannot align with that objective, please leave. Like that's the mindset of Michael Jordan. That's what made Michael Jordan the greatest basketball player. Potentially, you could say the greatest sportsman of all time was that singular focus on success and being in an environment where if you are going to step onto this court, which was my court, you need to bring your A game. You need to be prepared to work at least as hard as me. You'll never work as hard as me, but you need to have the intention to try and work at least as hard as me or you can't be around me. And that was Michael Jordan's mindset. So on one sense, history will always remember Michael Jordan favorably because of all he achieved, all the championships he won, <clears throat> the franchise he created and built, the NBA, which was built on his back. <clears throat> but how was that for his teammates? Did his teammates, I'm sure they enjoyed winning the trophy at the end of the season, but was every day around Michael Jordan enjoyable? I, I doubt you could almost look at Steve Jobs in almost the same way as you look at Michael Jordan. Yes, we created the iPhone. Yes, we created um, the iPad. Yes, we created these life world-changing products. And if you were part of that team, you might look back and go, wow, I did that. 
if you look back at each and every day, would you look back and say, wow, that was a fun, enjoyable day. <laughs> I had a great time on the road. Maybe not. Like Maybe you would, but maybe not. And I think there's a balance. Um, and I don't know where that balance is. I'm, I'm really drawn to Michael Jordan's approach because like, if you want to be the greatest at something in the world, you have to be very, very sort of laser focused. But also, like, since stop playing, since I stopped playing American football, like my faith as a Christian also grew. So everything I do, I try and think, go back to this mantra and this motto mm-hmm. that God is love, right? And then everything we do as Christians, we should be reflecting, like the Bible says, to be the aroma of Christ, to be salt and light. So you try and imitate Christ in a lot of way, and everything Christ was was loving, right? Um, and does that type of mindset, does it make you a loving individual? Can you reflect love or is, is it sort of self-absorption to a certain degree? So because my objectives and my outlook in life has changed since playing sport, the way I'm applying sport now has also changed like in a business context, in a personal context as well, where I'm trying to find the balance of the two. So it's kind of, taking an ethical lens as well. You have to think about others around you. You have to be there to lift your team up. It's not just, are we going to win? If you're not signed up to winning, leave. Let's find someone else and bring them in. I don't know if that's sustainable. Yes, you can find one Michael Jordan who can do that. But what happened to the Chicago Bulls after Michael Jordan retired? When did they last win a national championship? What's What's the legacy of the group? Like his legacy is great, right? So the history will remember him and they'll remember the Chicago Bulls for that era. But what is the legacy? And I, I really get drawn to, to sports and teams like the All Blacks now. So now I'm really like looking at the All Blacks. Who's the one person that personifies the All Blacks? Like, was it built around this one individual who was self-absorbed? And yeah, they were great and supremely talented. You might say Joe Malone a little bit, but it's not really a Michael Jordan of the All Blacks. The All Blacks is a, ethos it's a it's a fraternity there's stewardship and that's that's the key point that that i guess we wanted to come to today stewardship when i think about a sports jersey that's stewarded it's the all black jersey when you put the all black jersey on you you're putting on history you're putting on expectation you're putting on philosophies and principles and you're putting on a group mentality you're not putting it on with your name on the back and sort of exalting yourself, you're putting it on and saying, we are the All Blacks. We've done this for the last 60, 70, 80 years. We will do this today and we will do this tomorrow. And when my time's done, I'm going to take this jersey off and there'll be another kid who's going to pick that jersey up and the All Blacks will still be the All Blacks. So I'm more drawn to that now. That's, and I think that more aligns with like, like my Christian and Bible worldview where it's about stewardship. You're not an owner. You don't own that jersey. Someone has lent you that jersey for the duration of your career. When your career is over, you're going to have to take that off, clean it, and hand it over to the next person. So don't give it to them with holes in the back. Don't give it to them dirty and unwashed. But give it to them the way you received it. And maybe even better than you received it. And you tell them you're going to give it to the next person better than you received it. So I think all of that 
um, built on the principles of stewardship, like in the Bible. So in the Bible, like the key text that I lean on for stewardship is it's called the parable of the talents. Um, and it's a very a principle that's very much a business principle in many ways. Matthew 25, 14 to 20. And what the parable of the talents tells us to do is you must be a steward. You have no choice. You are a steward. Like everything you have in this life was lent and borrowed to you. Your very life itself, you were given your life to be a loving custodian in society, to help others, to serve others. You were given your resources. Like I was listening to something the other day, um, one of my, 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 my favorite podcasts, um, John Piper. Um, and he was saying basically that what's the purpose of prosperity? Like why, why are certain people rich? Like what is the purpose in the world for prosperity? Why does prosperity exist? If you have a dollar more than you need, what's the purpose of that dollar? Like what's, what's it there to serve your ego? What's, why is, why is that extra dollar, that incremental dollar above what you need? Why does it exist in society? And like, if you look at that from the Bible and from the, the perspective of this parable of the talents is like, there's, there's a few ways you can get things in life, right? One, you can, you can steal it. You can be dishonest and, and get it. Two, you can do an honest day's work and you can earn it and keep it, put it in the bank, hoard it. And three, which is where the parable of the talents is going, you can work. Working's better than stealing. Being honest is better than being this, dishonest. You can earn, you can keep, and then you can give. And that's the third aspect is that giving aspect. A steward is someone who's always giving. They're not just hoarding. They're not just thinking about self, but they're giving just like the guys who wear the all blacks Jersey, like they're giving back to the ethos of the all black. They're giving back to the fans. They're giving back to the next person who's going to wear the Jersey. And I'm really drawn to that. Um, but the parable of the talents basically said that there was a master, right? And the master had, he had three workers, like one worker, he gave five talents. And in the Bible, a talent is, is, is an, a measurement of value. So he gave one five talents. Um, the master was going to go away on a business trip. He was going to come back. So he gave this one five. He had another worker. He gave him two. He had a third worker. He gave him one. And he was like, all right, guys, here's your, your talents. It could be a bucket of money. It could be some kind of business venture, whatever it might be, a, a valuable thing. So one had five, one had two, one had one. Master goes away. No one knows when the master's going to come back, when the business owner is going to come back. So they were all supposed to get to work, right? The master made it clear. I want to return. When I come back, this five talent better not be five. This two better not be two. And this one better not be one. I need to see a return. So go deploy your skills, deploy your, your capabilities. Because I've, I've not given you five talents with the knowledge. I know you don't know how to make this into 10. I've given you the skills, I've trained you up, I've coached you. You should be able to make this five into 10 based on everything I've given you. So I'm not just leaving you with a million dollars and saying, by the time I come back, I want five. And you have no idea how to make five. <laughs> he's given you, like, he's coached you, he's given you your accounts, he's, he's, he's sent you to an MBA, he's given you all these different things. And when he comes back, he wants to see a return from all three. So he goes away and he comes back and at an unappointed time. And this is an illustration of Jesus in a way. who's kind of left us with all these things. He's gone away and he's going to come back. He's going to ask us, what did you do? Um, so when he comes back, he asked the one of five. And the one of five says, um, I, I went over here. I did X, Y, and Z. And here you go. You have 10. And he goes, well done. Good. Good job. And he went to the second one. He's like, I went away and I made the two into, into four. 
And he was like, great, good job. And I went away. And then he went to the third one. We had one. And he was like, oh, I was so risk averse. I just did not want to lose your one talent. So what I did was um, I dug it up and I kind of buried it. I made sure it was safe. So when you come back, at least you'd have that one talent. And he was like, just horrified, right? I've left you with skills and abilities, with gifts, um, with all of this, with other examples around you. And you've gone and you've buried what I've given you. You've not done anything to improve it. You've not stewarded it in any way. And he says, depart from me. And he takes his talent and he gives it to the, the guy that had five and made it 10 because he's going to take from the unproductive to give to the productive. And it was all about personal development and being productive. And that's what I think looking at that for me, that's like really, really strikes home around what stewardship looks like. And I think what's really cool about like how Jesus told parables is like a parable in the Bible is, is like an illustration. Like it's an illustration in a way that everyone can understand. Like if you are across a different culture, you speak a different language, you're speaking to someone about this 2000 years ago, we can all understand the narrative of what was being described to and that's what I really like about um, the parables because that struck me in a different way. Because I, when I was growing up, I knew the Bible was there about morals and how we should live. But I never thought you could apply the Bible to like business or sport mm-hmm. or personal development or like how you should sleep or what you should do in the morning, your morning routine. Like all these things are in the Bible. And it's like it's, it was quite revolutionary to me when I kind of first found out. And another book I read um, was by a Jewish rabbi, um, Rabbi Daniel Lapin, and it's called Business Secrets in the Bible. In the Old Testament, and predominantly within the Jewish Torah, um, which is like the first five books of the Christian Bible. Um, the Christian Old Testament. So it covers everything from integrity in business, like building a team, how you should treat your workers, values, the concept of retirement. In the Hebrew and in the Jewish culture, there is no word for retirement. There is no concept of retirement. So a lot of things that we see today in society, when you go back to this book and it looks at like the Jewish view on it or the view in the Old Testament, like things like retirement, like the there's an arbitrary day when you just stop working and you just stop being valuable to society. You just hang everything up and you play golf for 20 years. <laughs> that concept doesn't exist. Um, and what does that say to you? Like, what is your purpose, especially for people who may be older, right? You, you're approaching 65, 70. Like, what, what's, what does life bring then? Do you stop working? And if you'd attached your entire meaning and purpose to, to a, a secular career, so to speak, where you're going to work until you're 65 and that's it. You're going to get your retirement, your pension, and off you go. Where you have a life delineated from purpose, mission, vision, there's a huge deficit. And that deficit can lead to, that. you look at things like people get depressed, have anxiety, have worry, have a challenging time really understand what what they have to give because human beings the reason we are here i fundamentally believe the reason humans are here is because we all have something unique to pour into society right we were all created to pour something into society and if you don't know what that is fair enough you might not i didn't know like for quite a long time like really what my unique way to pour things into society was but i think once you crystallize that and, and i think that's where like for me like the Bible is such an inspirational book because it gives me grounding into like, wow, why? I look at the world around us, right? Like, was this all just an accident? Did just all 
come from nowhere, like coincidentally, and then ended up with all this amazing nature and creatures and oceans and all the science behind it. Um, and then like me, am I just randomly here for no reason? Um, I, I find it very hard to think that. Um, I think we're all created for a purpose. And I think any company that's purpose-driven, any individual that's purpose-driven, any organization that's purpose-driven is powerful. And you think of the most successful organization teams individuals in the world they've all had purpose they've all had meaning so it might not be a religious purpose for you or a religious meaning you might have but you have to have something larger than yourself that keeps you rolling keeps you rolling on that road man would you say that it's our duty then to if we've all got talents and gifts and if we don't use them we're going to lose them or they're going to go and transfer to other people would you say then it's sort of a, our quest or our journey or our duty mm. to to discover what our unique purpose is and use our talents to the maximum i'll go as far as saying you don't have a choice <laughs> right <laughs> yeah okay and like parable of the talents going back to that as well when i, I taught on this in, in our church use it or lose it was a huge theme because that's a big message in the parable of the talents. You use it or you will 100% lose it. Think of any skill you have today. If you do not use it, if you do not practice it, even a language, let's say you learned a language five years ago and you do not speak a word of that language in five years, how much of that language will, will you retain? You might be a genius and have an amazing memory and you might retain most of it. But for most people, the concept of atrophy or sort of, decay like comes into your skills as well so even as like you're a part of a company the company trains you up it gives you all these different skills but you, you never one day put them to practice you don't try and deploy those talent those skills they're going to atrophy they're going to de decay and it's like you're trying to work out right you're trying to build build muscles so you, you start off in january new year's resolution bam hit the gym build all these muscles but then you don't go again until march when you go back in march 70% of that muscle faded away somewhere you don't, you don't even know where it is, right? You have to be constantly active. You have to constantly practice. And that's why it's also important not to bite off more than you can chew because there's only so many hours in the day. And that's why I think Pareto is so important because, yeah, you can go around trying to acquire a million skills, but can you actively deploy in a meaningful and purposeful way a million skills? Got you it. probably can't. That's where strategy comes into it then. That's, that's where you have to be uh, really delineating between what's, what's your biggest strength and focus on strengths until you've got them sharpen the sword daily. How, how I, I know that in, in theory and as we're speaking about that, that's, that's really great and I can see how that would work. But in practice, that can be quite hard to do. How do you keep yourself sort of sharpening the saw on the right things? Mm -hmm. That's an amazing question, right? That is a very amazing question. So one approach I take to that is you have to live every day outside your comfort zone and you have to be comfortable outside your comfort zone. And that might take a long time and it might be a very dark and lonely journey to that point. Um, but until you're aligned to meaning and purpose and value, and especially if you're aligned to something greater than yourself, where it's not just a self-centered view of success, but this is a collaborative effort, then I find is normally in my own life, it's a lot easier to take the burden and pressure off because it's not, it's not about me. All right? It's not just 
about me doing these things for me when I was playing American football, even though like I was super self-absorbed, it was still about winning the first national championship for the team. Mm-hmm. And yeah, on a day to day, I did think about, okay, I have to do this. I have to do these things. I need to avoid distractions. I need to, I can't drink. I can't do this. Da, da, da. And that was very much a micro level, but that was very much linked to the macro level. When we came together for practice, I would be then locking in with 50 other guys and I'm hoping and expecting that they were doing the same thing that I was doing. So, and that was like, I play maybe five seasons, right? And like we were expected to win or to compete at least for the national championship our first season. And we got blown out in the first season. We got blown out again in the second season. Wow. And we all had to question ourselves because like we were taking it super seriously. We were all doing what we thought we could do. But I think, um, humility had to set in because the other team so i played for london warriors and there's another team called london blitz and they were the incumbent they'd been winning national championships and we were the new kids on the block so we thought yeah we'll come in um we have the ability we have the talent we have the coaching we have the facilities we have everything we need to just come in and win this national championship but perhaps there was an under appreciation of experience. This team was a tried and tested team. They were very experienced. They'd been to the national championship on the highest level many times. They were playing in Europe. They were playing at a very high level. Um, so I think the moment like, after the first two seasons where we really had to, to introspect and to deep dive and to look, all right, we're talented. We're fast, we're fit, we're strong. We have the best coaching in the country. We have coaches that worked with the NFL, coaches that have sent people into the NFL. It's not a, a tutelage issue. Like we have the information. We have the skills. So where's the last place to look? In the mind, all right? It wasn't a physical battle. It was now a mental battle. It was now one thing I learned from those first two seasons was humility. I'd learned to sort of have a degree of respect for the opposition, because um, there is a line of thinking in American football that you have disdain for the opposition and you just run through them and you just win. Um, but I kind of found respect for the opposition. When I found respect for the opposition, it liberated me in terms of what I was trying to do. Um, and it kind of made me think more professionally as well, not as a brazen young kid with all the talent in the world, but who lacked wisdom and, and respect and and also and humility. And once you could add wisdom, respect, humility, to physical ability, to great coaching, to good like uniform and kit and diet and lifestyle, and you bring all those things together, then yeah, it was very challenging the first two years. But then by the third year, I figured it out. And we had matured. We, a lot of us were quite young compared to the other team, but we had matured and we kind of earned our stripes. We'd been battle tested and then it was time to now go and do it. And then, yeah, I think since, since the third season, um, so that was one of like the best experiences in my life, really. In the finals, I scored four touchdowns um, and we won our first national championship. And it's like, it's funny, I'd visioned that when I first started playing American football, I'd always visioned being in a national championship and being the go-to wide receiver where everything would be on the line and I would catch the ball. Like since day one, I've had that vision in my mind. I wasn't sure if it, was, it would ever happen because I had a rough first two years. It was a new sport. It was very technical. It was like learning a new language, um, a new culture. There's a culture around American football as well. 
Um, and I almost gave up for the first two years, but I persisted, I persevered, I learned, I then put myself in a high performance environment. And that's why how I came to be part of the team I joined is I thought like, which team could build a legacy? Like they were, I could have easily gone to that team. I mentioned the London Blitz who were winning everything. I could have easily just gone and tried. My, a lot of my friends went there. They went to that team because that was the team. Like it was the Manchester United of the time kind of thing. Um, but that wasn't me. I wanted to go and be part of something new, be part of a new dynasty, a new legacy. Because in the UK, there'd been a lot of different legacies and dynasties of American football generations. This team had been like, that's, I think, probably six, seven, eight years into a dynasty. And I wanted to be a part of the next dynasty and be part of a new upstart. So I went to that team because I knew the tools would be there. Like I looked at the team, the quarterback was the best quarterback in the country. The coaches were the best coaches in the country. It was close to where I lived. We were culturally very similar in our approach. So I always knew that would be the next team. And I was up for the challenge, right? So, and I think in business as well, yeah, you might want to go work for Apple. Um, but sometimes you, you might want to think, like, what's the other areas like AI and, and virtual reality and all these new things coming through right now? Who's going to be the next Apple? And are you up for the fight to be a part of that upstart and a part of learning from the incumbent great and then creating your own legacy and, and moving forward? So I completely take your point that it was challenging. It still is challenging and like we're never going to be perfect. So we have to be prepared to live every day outside of your comfort zone. And again, as you said, with the skills that we have to use, I think we, we don't have a choice but to live outside our comfort zone. If you choose to live within your comfort zone, I think you're robbing yourself of what you could be. Like you're literally taking from yourself what you could potentially be. And how many times do you want to take something away from yourself that you, you could have? Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's a big thing. Finding courage for living outside your comfort zone where courage like is necessary outside your comfort zone. So you just have to find a way to get familiar with courage. Like what does courage look like to you? Are there any examples of courage in your life? Are there any books on courage you can read? Are there any courageous teams out there that you can, you can go and be a part of? And another podcast I listen to with my wife is called Courageous Parenting. And it's, it's a Christian parenting podcast. And it's all about like being a courageous parent, taking risks in your parenting. It's not really risks because it's, it's aligned to like a biblical approach to parenting. But it's like having the courage to do the things that the Bible encourages you to do with your kids. Um, and I think that's liberated us in a lot of different ways to sort of think outside the conventional box of society today um, and sort of align with, with that courageous approach. Is that where you, you take a lot of your cues from, like your mentors, like podcasts, mm -hmm. like in, in the pursuit of pushing for being and living outside of your comfort zone and drawing upon courage, but also having this humble respect for opponents and whether that's sport or business where do you mm. where do you kind of go for that for that cue or for that advice where do you draw upon for that strength yeah very very important <clears throat> um so i think where i get my inspiration from so again back to mantra and motto you have to always be congruent to your mantra and motto the pursuit of god in my life like that's the mantra and motto and what does that mean so like as a Christian, what's your way to understand and to have God be your mentor? 
it's the Bible, right? And the Bible to me is like the most inspirational text ever written. Like you're looking at a document that's 66 books, 40 different authors, authors compiled over 1,500 year period. So you have 66 books, 40 authors written over 1,500 years. And it's got one perfectly unified story leading to Jesus. And then it's historically accurate, like archaeological findings and archaeological facts on the history is validated much of the Bible. Um, and it's without error. There's no contradictions, etc. So for me, that's that's super inspirational that God can produce something like that in a physical form. And to me, that shows the greatness of God. That's one thing. And then I look around, I look out the window, I look at nature, I look at creatures that were created. I look at like the human body, the human brain, like the technology in the human brain. It's unreal. That was created from somewhere. Um, and then, yes, again, sport. Sports always in, inspired me. And I think, I know we've spoken about sport a bit, but a multidisciplinary approach to sport. And I'm still trying to figure out whether singularity of focus or being multidisciplinary is the way to go. It might be different for different people. Like, But for my kids now, like I'm thinking, do I want my son to play five different sports? Like I played five different sports and I took different things from all those five sports because my application I don't think I was really trying to be a professional sports person uh, maybe when I was younger in basketball that was in my mind a bit but then I it became about like economics and business and other things and just leveraging sport for these other objectives so I was always keen to try different sports because maybe there's a different insight I could glean to bring across to these different objectives. So again, it goes back to what's your motto, mantra, and objective? What's your OKR? Um, but for me, yeah, being multidisciplinary tapped me into the basketball greats, cricket as well. Cricket was very interesting. Like a lot of people might not take business insights from cricket, but for me, cricket, again, is very strategic. Um, it's a very, it's a long-term sport as well. It's not a quick one hour and we're done and we win. Cricket, you could be out there for five days in the hot sun trying to win a match and there's there's that's a unique test in any sport there's not many sports out there where it's like multi-day multi-faceted technical you need all these different types of equipment that need to come together so it's like american football in a way but it's more more long term it's more like a marathon version of american football american football is still it's still long like four hours for a game it's not short but you think cricket could be up to five days in the test format. And I watched it like being from a Caribbean Jamaican background, like cricket was always on in the house. Like West Indies were like the greatest cricket team in the world in the seventies and eighties. And it was kind of like the West Indies cricket team and the all blacks are two of the greatest sporting teams of all time. Right. And there were two teams where stewardship was important. Legacy was important. And they handed over to the next generation successfully a few times and there's not many sports teams that keep that sort of legacy and hand over to new generations and maintain success you look at what happened to manchester united after alex ferguson left that was a big test for football as to whether okay now alex ferguson's left 20 years of creating success and high performance achievement like could those principles easily flow to the next manager and it's proven to be very challenging so cricket um, and then boxing is another one that, again, different angle. So many things you can learn and get inspired by from boxing. And for boxing, for me, it's the history. Like some of my heroes are boxers, like Muhammad Ali um, is definitely a hero. 
Um, and then I think even recent boxers like Tyson Fury, um, he's very Muhammad Ali-esque in terms of charisma and personality, but also in terms of what he's overcome, like the mental health. Like now this is for me, the greatest comeback in sporting history, like Tyson Fury, what he did, like from what heavyweight world champion, world champion, battling depression, suicidal thoughts, 400 pounds in weight, like super obese. And then within a year and a half, he'd like, I would say, I wouldn't say overcome, but he sort of dealt with his demons and the depression side of things. Um, he'd got his life back together. He'd lost all the weight. And then he goes back and he goes and beats like the best, most world-class, one of the most world-class boxers out there in a very short space of time. So for me, again, the lesson there for like business, like you might have a business that blows out, like clients go, um, you're in a hole, you don't know where you're going to go tomorrow. The next business is taking all those old clients running away. And I was like, Tyson Fury is looking like Anthony Joshua is blowing up, Deontay Wilder is blowing up. Like he knew, like for him, he was the best like heavyweight out there. But other things got in the way of the physical things. Just like for us in the American football example, other things in the mind was getting in the way, the humility, the respect for others. That was our thing. For him, it was like he had one objective in life, right? His one objective since he was a, a little boy was to be heavyweight champion of the world. He was now heavyweight champion of the world. When he wakes up tomorrow, what's that one thing? He's already achieved it. Mm. So his mantra, his motto, his reason detra, reason for being, he'd achieved it. And he's 29. So it's like that whole retirement concept in, in the Hebrew language. There's no word for retirement or there's no concept of retirement because like you never, you don't have a goal so small that you achieve it. And then that's it. Okay, I've achieved my goal. What do I do now? You lose value, right? And when you lose value, you're trying to seek value in other things. And the things you try and seek value in at that point in time, maybe very much focused on instant gratification, short-term things. Okay, I'm heavyweight champion of the world. I've got all the money. I can do this. I can have fun. I have parties. I've got yacht and drink, da-da-da-da. Um, and then he's going to, yeah, just live the life. And that happened, that happened to him. And then he had to reevaluate, recalibrate, and come back. And I think he had his COVID-19. Like that, that was Tyson Fury's COVID-19 microcosm in his life. And I think for us now in the COVID era, it's like COVID is kind of like those demons that Tyson Fury faced, right? Um, and it's forcing us all to really, and I can speak for myself, um, it's forcing me to, to reevaluate, to look at the things I was doing, the goals I was setting, the way I was living, how I was prioritizing. And was it good enough? Like, was it, could I have done better? Is there more I could have been doing? Is there a different way I could have been thinking? And when you get given time, like you get gifted time that you weren't supposed to have like the last six, seven, eight months, we weren't supposed to have that time to reflect, to think, to meditate, to seek, to really understand like experiences we've had in life. When you get given a gift like that, and you can look at it as a gift, right? That's time that you would not have had if COVID didn't happen. Um, and that's not to be insensitive to all the destruction that COVID's brought into the world. Like people have lost their life, people are anxious, livelihoods on the fret. And we have to be sensitive to all of those things. So we have to look at COVID from a two-pronged, like two pieces of the same, two sides of the same coin. Like there's the destructive element of it, which like we have to take seriously, but also there's the the um side of it which leads to us finding a new normal which is in itself valuable too um, you come out into a new world 
um, and you try and drive forward and be a better version of yourself. And you have to be courageous to do that, right? You have to be courageous to say, wow, like I don't know everything. Wow, my formula might not have had all the right components. Some of them are right, but this input to my formula needs to be addressed. I need to understand a few different things. And when you get given time is how you use the time, right? You, everyone gets gifted like the same amount of hours in a day, right? But time is just that one resource that you never get an overdraft. You can't go into your overdraft of time. You can't save some up and use it in the future. We all are endowed with that same amount of time, just like we're all endowed with skills. So you have to use it. I don't think you have a choice. You have to use your time wisely. Like we, I mean, you do have a choice because we all have personal agency and that's another key thing that you get from the bible is that god does give you free will and free choice to live your life how you want like you can live how you want just know there's accountability for all your decisions just like in business you can make whatever decision you want in business but there is accountability you're going to be accountable either to yourself to your board of directors to your shareholders to a regulator to someone else you will be accountable so when we get given time and we talk about stewardship Stewardship's only powerful in the concept of accountability, who you're accountable to for how you steward. Um, so I think with COVID and the gift of time that we have, really, yeah, we will be accountable for how we use our time. You look at your goals and the things you want to achieve, like you may be accountable to yourself. You may have an accountability group, which is something I found very useful, having other people where you commit your goals to those people. And then you have to report back to those people why you didn't achieve it, okay? And it's not just having a group that ticks a box and says, oh, I was going to go to the gym three times a week. It's like, <laughs> all right, you went to the gym three times a week. What did you achieve? Why did you go to the gym three times a week? Were you aligned with your Pareto goals? Um, should you have been going four times a week? Or should you be going twice? It's not just, yeah, great, you went to the gym three times a week. Um, it's really yeah, having a really good accountability group which in like dissects your outcomes and it's not just yes you did it good job next so I think that's great and then other things that inspire me like books I've enjoyed recently so one of my favorite Christian authors A.W. Tozer he speaks about the pursuit of God which is that's what I'm driving towards um, and the, basically the human thirst for the divine and looks through like history and how humans have always had a thirst for divinity, a thirst for something greater themselves, a desire to be realigned to their creator. And that's really interesting. Um, and then I've been reading very broadly, really, the last 12 months. So I've read a lot about the British Empire. Like, And through COVID, that's one of the things I just wanted to understand a bit more, like in a lot more detail. So I read John Darwin, um, it's called The Unfinished Empire. So it really goes through every corner of the British Empire from where we are today in Singapore, the history of Singapore. Why was Singapore part of the empire? What did Singapore bring? Um, it went from through Africa, from north to south and the strategic importance, the resource endowment in Africa and why that was so essential. Um, all the way up to Hong Kong. I lived in Hong Kong before and um, never really understood the, the history from an empire perspective of Hong Kong, why Hong Kong was so strategic why the British Empire needed Hong Kong from China back back um, after the Opium Wars, etc. Um, all the way into the Caribbean, um, into North America, etc. So it really helped me to understand the world a bit more because uh, the British Empire touched almost every part of the world. So just really going back to history and not history 
like the history we learned at school in the UK, but real history, real 360 critical evaluation of history and not just the history we, we're given on the table in GCSEs or A-levels in the UK. Um, and then off not the back of that one, <laughs> not just Henry VIII, man, real yeah. context-based history. Why is Singapore, Singapore today? Why is Hong Kong, Hong Kong today? Why is Africa, Africa today? Why is the Caribbean, the Caribbean today? Uh, why is the US, the US today? Like, go through history and like, wow, all of this makes sense. Like, why Singapore is Singapore today makes so much sense from the perspective of history. Um, you might just take it as a given, but um, yeah, history has a lot to play in, in understanding the world in which we live now, especially for us as expats living in different parts of the so-called historical empire. Um, and then the, the British history. So who are the key people who forged Victorian Britain? So I read Jacob Rees-Mogg's The Victorians, and that basically focused on the 12 titans who forged Victorian Britain. And that, to me, really helps to explain Britain today because the Victorian period sowed a lot of seeds for the society. I mean, it's a very different society today than the Victorian society, but a lot of the foundational seeds of the way of life was sowed by like these 12 titans um, in that time. Um, and then I wanted to understand race and class in the empire. So Akala, one of my favorite authors and historians in the UK, he was a he is, he's a rapper as well. Um, he's... Miss Dynamite, she was a famous garage artist back in the day, her brother. Um, he wrote this book, Race and Class and Empire. And for us, uh, coming from like Caribbean origin, um, who migrated to the UK, essentially an in intra-migration within the empire, um, might be known as the Windrush generation after World War II, this group of people from the Caribbean were invited into the UK to help rebuild after World War II as nurses, builders, um, and all these different essential services. Um, and he helps really to provide context as to the reason for that migration, the dynamics post-migration, and the legacies of that today, especially in the education system. And that, not just looking at it from a racial perspective, but also from a, a class perspective, which I've understudied as well. Like I've looked at a lot of history from the prism of racial history, but you realize that race and class intersects and a lot of the legacy issues and issues we see today, they're not just racial issues, but they're class issues, but people often don't look at the class reasons behind it. So I think he did a good job in sort of introspecting the, where the race and class meets, meets each other's and, and looking at a history of class in Britain, like over the last 500 years, like how has class evolved? How are a lot of issues, class issues first, then became racial issues? So that was really good. Um, and then like in terms of finances and financial education, cool book I read this year or still reading, um, Ashwath Damodaran, Little Book of Valuation. It's basically how to value a company. Um, and he's like seen as the dean of valuation. So all the key IPOs, etc. A lot of them, like he speaks about like how, how well valued they are. Are they overvalued? Are they undervalued? So he's got this really little succinct book around how to look at a company, look at the numbers, look at the macro climate and formulate a valuation of that company. Um, so that's really cool. And then the last one I'd mention really is The Way to Wealth, Benjamin Franklin, mm -hmm. written like 100, over 100 years ago, 150 plus years ago. But it's just so funny how some of those concepts are timeless, the concepts around wealth and money and 
understanding money. And something that I took away from Benjamin Franklin, actually, that became a part of my year is um, some of the key things Benjamin Franklin aim to achieve every single day. So there are things that he thought, if you do these few things, um, you would you'd essentially be quite, quite successful. So some of those things, he had a checklist every evening he went through, um, and then he, he seemed to seek to understand, did he practice humility? Um, was he someone who denied himself to help others in that day? Was he a sincere person? Was there any acts of kindness? Did he try to lend someone a helping hand or be honest when honesty was needed, sincerity, tranquility. Did he find peace and quiet in the day? How hard is it for us in this day and age to find peace and quiet meditation, like things like that today, meditation is a big thing, right? But even back then, peace and quiet, and even in the Bible, like Jesus was someone who practiced meditation. He regularly would leave the crowd and go up on a mountain and sit there and stare out and pray and meditate to God. And, and that's a template for us today. That that mental health aspect is very important, and you need peace and quiet. You need introspection to achieve that. Um, what else is there? So there is also frugality. So that's an interesting one. Being frugal, like a lot of people would call that being cheap today. <laughs> but <laughs> Benjamin Franklin really introspects frugality, and he helps us to look at like if you're seeking to build wealth, if you're seeking to build capital. Anything that is sort of any money you spend on non-value creating things is a detractor from that objective. So the things you should be acquiring first in life are things which add value in some way. It might be a financial asset, it might be a cultural asset, it might be a spiritual asset, but spend your time, not just money, spend your time and your money on things that build value and not things that you're just there to consume in the moment, instant gratification things. So seeking to understand frugality in a lot more, uh, a lot better, in a, in a better way. Um, other things that he has on the list um, includes, we've gone through tranquility, humility, frugality. Okay, these two are important. Industry, like really thinking about what is your industry like what's your what's your business what's the value you're trying to bring into the world and how can you be courageous with that how can you take risk educated risk wise risk not um immature risk um how can you really deploy risk in the right ways in industry um in relationships etc um, and then the other one is resolutions like how are you planning how are you setting your visions and your goals and how often are you coming back to crystallize them? So, yeah, I think a very long answer to your question. But, yeah, those are some of the places I get inspiration from, some of the things I'm reading, which help me to kind of stay on course. That is that's mind-blown, super important, and lots of lessons that you've just uh, you've just dropped there. Um, thank you for that. That's, that's definitely given the listeners uh, a lot to get into and a lot to follow up with. There's so many yeah. directions I think we could, we could go, but um, I think mm-hmm. really to, to, to kind of sort of start to wrap this one up, what, yeah. what is your mission in life? And, and I know, again, mm-hmm. you've kind of highlighted it through the course of today's talk, but I think it would be good just to get the statement or the, the overall mm-hmm. arch mission again for the listeners. Yeah, the mission statement really in this keeping this succinct and to the point is serve God, serve others, 
right? That's essentially it in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. When I say serve God, you might understand what I mean by that. I think God's given us gifts. He's given us a framework in the Bible from a Christian perspective, how to live, how to be a good citizen, how to be a good steward, how to be a good business person, how to be a good parent. There's framework for almost everything you need in life there. And then serve others. When I say that, I think the first field God's given us to work is our family. And especially if you're a parent, your children. So they like that little group of microcosm there, you have to spend a lot of time serving them, right? And developing them, pouring into them and not just seeking to extract from them. So pouring into your family, pouring into other Christians. God's asked us as Christians um, to, to build up other Christians, encourage other Christians. Christians go through a lot of challenges in the world, a lot of persecution, ostracized in different places, etc. So help them. Um, friends, be a good friend and understand what being a good friend means. Like you can't be a good friend to a million people, um, but you choose friends wisely and you be a good friend who serve, you serve, you seek to put into the friendship and not take out. Um, and that's what authentic friendship looks like. You serve your colleagues as well. And again, you're bringing things to offer the company. You're bringing things into the world that if you're an entrepreneur, you're seeking to serve society. You're not just seeking to extract economic rent from society, but you're seeking to build and serve society. And hey, you might be rewarded handsomely for that. That's great. Um, then acquaintances, people you come, come into contact with, be a good citizen, smile, say good morning, say hello. Um, don't have sort of preconceived notions of people you come in contact with. Try and see people how God would see them. That's the way I try and look at other people. It's very easy to have stereotypes and preconceptions and look at how people may be or may not be. But like, I think God would want us to see each person as a, a create one of his children, basically. Like we're all God's children, right? we're all brothers and sisters in some way, shape or form. Um, so that's, that's important. And as much of the world as possible. So, I mean, some of us can touch more of the world than others can, right? And like, like in churches, churches are commissioned to go into all countries in the world and to share God's love with other people, to share a knowledge of God with other people. Some people are overwhelmed by that because not everyone has the resources, the skills, the time to go to South America and go to Africa and go to Papua New Guinea and do all this stuff. But I think with technology and with resources, we can touch a lot more people than we probably think. Um, so whether that's through charity, whether that's through just um, being an encouragement, offering people advice, giving someone a shoulder to cry on, etc., cetera, uh, we can do all those things. And when we do all this in love, humility, and with authenticity. So that's the mission in life, serve God and serve others. And I just mentioned how I aspire to serve others. Well, Romain, uh, thank you so much for, for coming on today. It was a pleasure. It was a really good chat. <laughs> yeah, it's been, um, it's been an absolute joy to, to get to know you on, on the podcast with the listeners. And I think, mm. I think when people go through this, they start to pick it up. I, I would suggest that they listen again because there's so many facets of, of knowledge that you've unlocked and, and almost dynamics to business, but also to your personal life, to your daily routine, to how you find courage. To, to what advice you've received, where you look for your mentorship and, and almost that strategic lens. I think what's, what's shone through here to me anyway today is, is, is how you've actually become proactive around the things you'd like to change and how you've challenged your own understanding of 
things even just like going to a chiropractor, right? Like you've gone, hey, I thought this about it, but now maybe I need to look at that again. And, and it's important because I think we could all take a lesson to do that more because sometimes we're driving towards a goal. Like you said, with the American football, it, 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 you don't need to be that athlete to that degree because your objective has changed. And I think that is super important. Like how can you sometimes recalibrate your life to go, right, the overall mission is, is still the same, but potentially the objective of what I need to do today is different. And I think that, that it amongst the whole mission statement is, is really important. Um, final question then for you, what is the most surprising thing that has made a big difference to your success? It's the hardest question. <laughs> <laughs> Saved it to the end. Last question. Okay. Most surprising thing that has made a big difference in my success so far. Most surprising thing really is it has to be around failure. Right. Okay. Um, also. So where do I start off this one? Like in the Caribbean culture, failure isn't permitted so much. Failure is looked down upon, right? Educational right. failure, business failure. And I was listening to a podcast yesterday um, this guy, he's, he's doing an IPO in the US in Q1 next year, and his company is buying up private and public equities in the Caribbean, and they're going to list the holding company on NASDAQ so that people from a Caribbean diaspora or anyone else who want exposure to Caribbean equities can buy into that IPO. And one of the things he's saying, the reason why he has to do that is because there's this culture in the Caribbean of like, especially from investors, investors are not prepared to lose a dime. Right, there's this risk aversion where like, if you look at the US, most startups fail and investors accept that. Right, If you're the first startup I'm investing in, I know 99% of the time you're probably going to fail. But investors still invest. But in like certain markets like the Caribbean, that whole approach to failing and pivoting doesn't, it's not an evolved concept. People do not want to lose money at any cost. So it's led to risk aversion. When you have risk aversion, there's a lack of courage. There's a lack of support for entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs can't go out and really road test outlandish ideas and risk failure, pivot and come back. So you look at like Microsoft was the res response to a failure and a pivot by Gates. Um, Apple had failed in, in many things before it became great. Twitter had failed in many things and, and became, became great afterwards. It was a, a pivot. So for me, one of the most surprising things, and it was really sort of realizing that failure is not bad in and of itself. Failure is just a lesson on the road to success. Failure mm -hmm. is part of a spectrum and evolution, a road, a journey. It's like an obstacle, but you're running hurdles. So you have to jump over the obstacle. It's not like, oh, there's a hurdle, let's stop, turn around, go home. It's like, it's a hurdle. Right. And like, let's thrive on seeing hurdles. Let's train how to jump hurdles. Let's train how to land and realize, okay, there might be another one. Let's learn that. Okay. I've jumped over that last one. Another one might be on the way zone in, right? The next hurdle might be higher. Who knows? But you're going to have to jump higher to get over it. Or maybe you just have to run through it and fall down and get up and then keep going. You see that in the Olympics, like all the time where hurdlers, they fall down, they get up and they keep going. They may not win the race, but they finish They do the best they could do given the obstacles that were in their way. So I think the most, that's been the most surprising thing really is not being phased by failure, but just seeing it as that hurdle, which you need to go over and embracing it. And like, just like when you watch the hundred meter hurdles in the Olympics, it's just so 
like amazingly fluent how hurdlers are just going up and down, up and down. It's just for me, it's an illustration of life, right? Some of them fall, some of them break their legs, some of them get injured and they get carted off. But most of them jump over the hurdles. Most of them finish, like 85, 90% of hurdlers finish the race. Um, and then they, they keep going. So just like um, that gentleman was saying about investors in the Caribbean not being open to risk-taking, not being hope, open to falling through a hurdle, um, it does limit your society because a lot of entrepreneurs are starved of capital now who can't create companies that will create jobs, that will build the fabric of a society. And I think that goes to speak of the value and importance of entrepreneurship as well. Um, entrepreneurs sometimes get a rough time, um, but they're the fabric. SMEs and new startups, they build the next generation of companies, jobs, the fabric that will hold families and societies together. Um, and they need to be they need to be supported um, because they, they're willing to embrace the risk of failure, right? If you start a business, you know this might fail. There's no guarantee it'll be successful. But I'm going to go outside today. I'm going to put my boots on and I'm going to move forward. Um, so don't be phased by failure when it seems inevitable. So there's been times in my life where failure seemed inevitable, but something in my mind clicked in and that's being connected to that higher purpose, that fact that I'm not alone. There is someone helping me. There are higher forces than me helping me. There's mentors around me helping me. There's a family that loves me. No matter how many times I fall down, I can come home. Someone will smile and give me a hug. So you have to be aligned to that and realize that's really, yeah, where are you going to come home to in the evening? Are they still going to love you even if you fail? Like probably they are. And that's what you should, that's what you should be thinking about. Um, and then, yeah, success has just often been just on the other side of that failure. Right. So if I had given up and turned around and then I had been given some sort of video replay and I could see, oh, success was just on the other side, but I just stopped. It's like, keep going until you can't breathe anymore. Like until breath is gone, you can still do it. Um, so it's important to persevere in the face of obstacles. That's, that's been surprising to me because it's not a cultural a thing that was ingrained into me culturally. I love that, man. That, that was awesome. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much, Romain, for uh, giving your wisdom today. Really, really appreciate it. It was, yeah, it was an honor. And yeah, just keep up the good work and keep the, the really good content coming. I think, yeah, the world needs more inspiring content focused around courage and sort of how to, to inspire um, and, and show people doing inspirational things so that people can keep pushing forward and keep driving their success and being an inspiration to other people.